Friends, today we're continuing our series through the book of Colossians. As Central Baptist, we believe that every word in the Bible is inspired by God, and it is given to us. They are given to us so that we can grow to be more like Christ. Therefore, we're studying Colossians verse by verse. So last week, we looked at Colossians 1, verses 1 and 2. Today, we're going to look at Colossians 1, verses 3 through 14. If you would open your Bible, and if you follow along with me, this is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Paul says in, first, in Colossians 1, verse 3, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you. Since the day you heard, you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Question, does your life please the Lord? Does your life please the Lord? Now, this is an important question. And you can answer it in one of three ways. You can answer it with confidence. Yes, it does. And maybe this confidence is resting on the work of Christ. And then that confidence is good. Maybe it isn't. You can answer with hesitance. Well, I hope it does. Well, I, I, I hope in the Lord it does. And that could be a good thing. Right? That we would hope that our lives would please the Lord. Or we can answer with indifference. I don't care. And that is bad. So where are you? How... How is your relationship with the Lord? Is it pleasing to Him? Hopefully, for most of us, this question causes us to be slightly 
uncomfortable. That's probably a good thing if this question causes you to look inside your life and evaluate how you're living and if you're living for the glory of God. Our goal in life must be to please God, shouldn't it? Our first morning thought should be, what does God want of me today? Our last thoughts at night should still be, what is most pleasing to God? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 9, So whether we are at home, alive, or away, dead, we make our aim to please Him. But we don't constantly do that, do we? Even the most disciplined Christians struggle to meditate on the law of the, of the Lord day and night. We don't always set our minds on the things that are above. Sin, rebellion, unbelief are all still part of our present human experience, aren't they? So that question is important. Does my life please the Lord? There is a problem if we can't say it does, or if we think it doesn't. If we don't please God, if our lives don't please the Lord, we will not spend eternity with Him. Heaven is a place for those who are pleasant to the Lord. I mean, have you thought about that? Can you imagine God bringing somebody into heaven and then saying, Oh, I can't stand this person. Why did I ever bring them in? That, that would be terrible. But that won't happen. God will bring those who please him into heaven. But what does it mean to please the Lord? What should it look like? Well, our text today is going to help us understand that question. So that we can have assurance and confidence in the Lord as we walk with Him, as we look forward to eternity in heaven. Our text proposes a solution. God, our God, is a merciful God. He is great at making things that are impossible for us Possible. He is great at making those who do not please him. Please him. So here's my central theme for our message today. Okay, here's my main point. God's demands of us are more than we can give. He demands of us more than we can give. But he supplies us with more than we need. God demands of us more than we could produce ourselves. In other words, heaven is unattainable. A relationship with God that is pleasant to Him is unattainable. Unless God Himself gives us what we need to live for Him. 
So last week we considered Paul, who is Paul, right? And last week we also considered the Colossians, who are the Colossians. Today we're going to spend some time thinking about Paul's prayer for the Colossians. It's a prayer of thanksgiving, but it's also a prayer of supplication. And those are my two points. Paul's thanksgiving for the Colossians, we're going to see that in verses 3 through 8, and Paul's supplication for the Colossians. We're going to see that in verses 9 through 14. So consider first Paul's thanksgiving. Look back at verse 3. He says, we, probably here referring to him and Timothy, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Remember, Paul had never visited the Colossians. He had never met them. He did not plant that church. Yet in his busy schedule, in the midst of writing the Bible, he finds time to pray for this church. A church that likely met at a home. A church that was likely not very large, not in a significant city. But a church that was beloved by God. So Paul prays for them. In his prayer, he expresses thankfulness. Thankfulness to God for the Colossians. He doesn't thank the Colossians directly. Have you noticed that? He doesn't say, thank you, Colossians, for being so great. Instead, he thanks God for them. He thanks God for his grace in their lives. He always thanks God for people. It's a way to recognize that all good things come from God. Even the good that come from people ultimately come from God. By the way, this is the right way to compliment someone. We're looking for evidences of God's grace in people's lives. We can always celebrate that. We can always speak of the goodness of God, whether it be in His specific saving grace or in His general grace towards all of humanity. Paul first thanks God for the gospel that was born in their hearts. That's what Paul thanks the Lord for. Now, I wonder, when we look around our congregation, do we remember to thank God for saving one another? Do we remember to thank God because the gospel is at work in our hearts and in our lives? We should learn this from the apostle. Look at verses 4 and 5. We always thank God, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid out for you in heaven. So Paul thanks God because of their faith. Right? They have been given faith, by the way. He can only thank God for faith if God is the one who gives faith, right? So he thanks God that they have faith, that he thanks God that they have love, and he thanks God that they have hope. This is the trifecta of the Christian life, faith, love, and hope. 
with different emphasis, Paul talks about these three elements that are foundational for the Christian life elsewhere. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 Thessalonians 1. And why is faith, love, and hope so important? First of all, faith is important because it rests on an object. It rests on Jesus. Friends, faith in Jesus is the only way one becomes a Christian. So, this begins to answer our question, right? How do we live a life that is pleasing to God? It begins with faith. It begins with believing. If the first thing that you think about when you're considering how do I please the Lord is what you ought to do, you have to go back and reconsider the gospel. God first calls us to believe. Faith, faith is what begins the Christian experience. Faith is also what carries us through. The answer to the question, how did you become a Christian, must always be rooted in faith and faith on Jesus Christ. But faith produces something, doesn't it? We, we can't stop there and say, all we need is faith, but our faith produces no work. Both Paul and James would speak very strongly against this, and so would Jesus. Love is the outwork of this faith. The fruit. Genuine faith produces love. In the Colossians, remember, who were called saints and faithful brothers are now commended because of their love for the saints. But then finally, we see that the Colossians are characterized by hope. Hope is the motivation. Very often when we think of hope, we think of wishful thinking, right? I hope it doesn't rain today, right? I hope the Miami Dolphins win. Well, that's a very weak hope. But I hope my, sport, my sports team wins the game today. You see, very often in our language, we... We speak of hope as wishful thinking. But in the Bible, hope is an assurance. Hope is an assurance that God will deliver His promises. Hope is the reward of heaven. Hope is when you run the race with your eyes fixed on the finish line, knowing that you will arrive there. Why? Because faith will carry you through. Christianity is a goal-oriented religion. We don't live our Christian lives for the sake of today, right? But, as we just sang, because He lives, we can face tomorrow. Because there is a hope stored up for us tomorrow. So, trials, difficulties, loss, poor health, death, broken relationships. The Bible speaks into all of those. The hope of the Christian is that 
we walk through challenges and difficulties today knowing that the Lord will ultimately redeem all of them. Christianity is not a static religion. Here, stand here. Christianity is a race that we're called to run with perseverance. We live on this earth, in this country, in this city, but our ultimate destination, goal, ambition, is to arrive in heaven. And why? Because God is there. This hope has arrived in the heart of the Colossians because they heard something. See that? Look back in verse 5. Of this you have heard. Of this hope you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. In its genesis, Christianity is a message. You, you might have heard the phrase that goes, whatever you go, preach the gospel, and if it is necessary, use words. That's not the message that Paul relays to us here, right? But Paul would fix that sentence and would say, whatever you go, preach the gospel, and since it's necessary, use words. Use words to express this message. Because it is faith in the message that transforms the heart. Notice the verbs that Paul uses here in verses 5 and 6. To hear. In verse 6 again, to understand. In verse 7, to learn. The gospel is primarily not about action. Okay, as it begins. But about receiving a message. I wonder, do you know the message of the gospel? Are you able to articulate the message of the gospel? If I were to ask you to stand up right now in your seat, I won't do that. But if I were to ask you to stand up right now in your seat and summarize the gospel, what would you say? Now that's important because the, the gospel is the message of salvation. And being able to articulate the gospel gives us assurance that the Lord has saved us. Enables us to lead others to salvation. It is the message of faith, love, and hope. But it's important for us to know this. The gospel, however, does not come to us in order to first comfort us, but to confront us. This is why Paul calls it the word of truth. We live in a world that is uncomfortable with the truth. And to be honest, we often think that others are uncomfortable with the truth, but very often so are we. But the truth of the gospel comes to us with a purpose. It doesn't offend for the sake of offense alone. It offends us in order to humble us. And then, if we embrace it by faith, it saves us. This is the message of the gospel. It offends us because it first has to tell us that we are sinners. 
The message of the gospel is not a message for those who are well, but for those who are sick. And that describes us in our experience. The message of the gospel is not for those who are alive, but for those who are dead. The message of the gospel comes to meet us not when we're lovable, but when we are unlovable. Not when we love God, but when we hate God. You know, I invited someone to church this week, and the person said, I need to get my life together before I go to church. Friends, that's like saying, I need to learn how to read and write first in order to go to school. Or, I need to get healthy first in order to go see the doctor. No, no. If you are here today and your life is broken, you're in the right place. If you're here today and, and you know that this message is, is, is piercing your heart because you are a sinner, dead in your trespasses, depraved in your actions and thoughts, friends, you're in the right place. Because this message is offending you. But if you will just humble yourself before the mighty hand of God and say, Lord, it is true that I am a sinner and eternity in hell paying for my punishments will not suffice because my sin against all holy, eternal God can only be paid for by holy, eternal God himself. If you will humble yourself before the mighty hand of God, confess your sins, turn to Christ, trust in His life, perfect life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension to the right hand of the Father. If you profess Him as your only hope of having a relationship with God, He will save you. So you are in the right place if your life is broken. If you don't find hope in your actions, if you do not find freedom from your sins, because by turning to Christ, you can have hope for this life and the life to come. It is the vilest of offenders who Christ is after. He came for the sick. He came for you. He came for me. You know, let me say this. You may be coming in here, and sometimes coming to a new church is difficult. You may be new among us. I know that some of you are. Sometimes some, maybe you're hearing this message through our streaming, and, and, and you may be thinking, you know, I go to church, and it looks like everybody's lives is so put together. I could never be like them. Friends, you could not be more mistaken. We are very good. We're very good at living outwardly a reality that sometimes is not true inwardly. So if you're looking at us and think you cannot be like us, let, let, me, encourage, let me encourage you to spend more time with us. And, and you see that all of us still struggle with our sins. But when we sin, friends, we run to Christ. We, we still struggle with, with this indwelling war that is being waged inside of us that we want to please God, but we don't always do that. But the message of the gospel meets us there and encourages us to run to Christ. So, so the reality is we're not any different from you. Come to know us. Let us, let us reveal our lives to you. And, and may you know that we are broken people.
that we struggle with sin. But we find victory not because we're great, but because Jesus is great, because our Savior is powerful, not because there's anything good within us, but because we receive every good gift from Christ Himself. So we're not perfect, but we know how to point you to the one who is. And we know how to point you to the one who can redeem, transform your life. So have hope. Have hope, even as you are among us. Maybe you started New Year's resolution yesterday. How many of you started New Year's resolution yesterday? All right, not many of you. Good, because chances are you will not keep it. Some of you already postponed your New Year's resolution to Monday, right? Because you thought, let me start yesterday, but the leftovers look too good. So perhaps by Monday, there will be no leftovers. Can I encourage you not to think of New Year's resolution as a means for you to better necessarily your body or your disciplines? Even intellectually. Here's a New Year's resolution that I want to challenge you to embrace this year and every year. Resolve to believe the gospel more and more each day of my life. Let the gospel affect the way you live, grow in faith, and trust the promises of God for you. That's a New Year's resolution worth keeping. That's a New Year's resolution good for this year and for every year to come. Friends, we never graduate from believing the gospel. Once I was talking to a pastor from a mega church in South Florida, and, and I was showing him a, a bookstore that we had in our former church. And I said, hey, why don't you choose a book for your son here? You, you can take whatever book. Here's a suggestion. There's a book called, What is the Gospel? Do you think your son needs the gospel? His answer, actually, no, I don't think so. I think I need to look for something else. Isn't that a misunderstanding of what the gospel does? We need it. Every hour, every minute, every second. We need it at all times. Now look again at verse 6. This message of truth has come to you. As indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. The gospel is a message of grace. And it's the message of truth. It deals properly with our sin, that is truth, and it offers that which we can never achieve, that is, the grace of God in Christ. Grace is not simply telling people what they want to hear. Grace is speaking the truth and offering the solution. That's what this message offers. And this message comes through a messenger. Did you see that? We meet him in verses 7 and 8. His name, Epaphras. We don't know a whole lot about Epaphras, but he appears here in Colossians 1. He also appears in Colossians 4 and in the letter to Philemon. In Colossians, Paul indicates that Epaphras perhaps planted the church at Colossae. He calls himself a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. 
In Colossians 4, Paul reminds the Colossians that, that Epaphras prays for them, struggling in prayer. That's a good pastor. That's a good minister. But Paul also calls Epaphras a fellow servant. And the word here could be servant, or it could be a bond servant, or it could even mean slave. It's ambiguous. But in Philemon, we learn that Paul actually refers to Epaphras as a fellow prisoner. That is clear. So it seems that somehow Paul and Epaphras found themselves in the same jail cell in Rome. And there, instead of complaints and grumbling and discouragement, Epaphras encourages Paul with a report of a faithful congregation that began in Colossae. A congregation whose love for one another is born of the Spirit. Friends, we need more Epaphras in the world, don't we? We need more Epaphrases in this church. We need more Epaphrases in this city. We always need more Epaphrases. Churches thrive when they're filled with men and women like Epaphras, young and old, married or single, from Christian homes or from radical conversions. Men and women who give up of themselves so that the church of Christ may be beautiful, spotless, blameless, and without, without wrinkles. So how do we find more epaphrases in our church? How do we find this epaphrasis here at Central Baptist Church? Well, there's a little hint in verse 7 that's helpful. The word learned in verse 7 could also be rendered this way. You are discipled by Epaphras. Epaphras was a discipler, somebody that spent time with people, somebody who invested his life in people. He was not just a speaker who spoke and then disappeared. He spent time considering the gospel. He spent time developing a gospel-centered system of discipleship. The gospel is a message, but it is often taught through relationships. So here is my vision for Central Baptist Church. Central Baptist Church, we want to see Epaphrasis on our dining room tables, at parks, meeting together during lunch breaks. We want to see moms who are busy spending time with other moms. We want to see single people, single men and women, spending time sitting on the dining room table of the large families of our church. Older men teaching younger men to be godly and to lift up holy hands. Older women teaching younger women to be dedicated to their families. 
Fathers who take charge of the spiritual life of their families. Children who look to their parents to ask, who is Jesus and how can I receive him? A church where the old and the aged is not viewed as a burden, but as a source of wisdom, as a source of blessing, as those who we should go to and say thank you for your faithful ministry to this church for decades. Thank you for faithfully walking with the Lord and setting to me an example so that I too can set an example for the generation to come. This is my picture for Central Baptist Church. A church where the gospel is preached from the pulpits, but also from the pews. Yes, through relationships. May we not be a church that gathers once a week in this building, but that is constantly gathering in smaller forms. May we love one another enough that we want to spend time with one another, reminding one another of the love of Christ for us. Reminding one another that Christ died for us. And because He died, we live. And we live a life that is abundant. Here's another, another application that we can gather from this text that, that, that connects with this first application. We, other, we often render prayers of intercession for our brothers and sisters, and that's good. If you like prayer, which should describe all of you if you're Christians, right? Christians like prayer, right? We have a prayer meeting that meets every Wednesday at 6 p.m. It would be so important for you to be here as we intercede for one another. If you're at all possible, to, if you're at all able to be here, be here in prayer, laboring with one another. If you're not able to be here, we send out an email and we print out a prayer list. Would you consider taking time to go through our prayer list? Would you consider praying for one another? But Paul's prayer teaches us something, right? We often run to prayer requests, and that's so important. We do not want to stop doing that. But Paul's prayer here is first a prayer of thanksgiving. Paul is encouraged by the grace of God in the hearts of the believers. And we should be too. We should live in an encouragement-filled environment where we are often looking, looking out to one another and saying, thank God for His grace in your life. We're looking for the good in others. When dealing with fellow church members at our church, we should assume they are regenerated. They are godly. We should assume that God is at work in them. So, we should love them because God is at work in them. This is why church membership is so important. We want to know that everyone that comes into membership at our church is born again so that we can indeed pray with thankfulness to the Lord for His work in our lives, for His work at our church. 
Paul makes it so clear in 1 Corinthians 13. By the way, this is a passage that's often read at weddings, and that's beautiful. It should be read at weddings. But this passage is actually talking about the relationship among members of a church and how they should use their gifts to build one another up. 1 Corinthians 13 comes right after 1 Corinthians 12. And right after it comes 1 Corinthians 14. Two passages that deal that deal deeply with the gifts of God used in the church. And what does Paul put right in the middle of these two passages? Love. A love that would be unattainable unless the Lord was at work in us. And He is. And because He is, we should view one another at our church in light of these verses. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. I love verse 7. By the way, I often use verse 7 in marriage counseling. So it's, it's actually a good verse for us to consider as we're trying to work through issues with our spouses. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. What church will not thrive if 1 Corinthians 13 verse 7 is at the center of it? If the members of a church are considering these things and living in light of these things, Friends, if our Lord, if our love is born of God, it will be like this. And we'll thrive. Our love for one another will increase. We'll grow. We'll view one another. We already do that, right? There's great love in this church. But our love for one another will grow and increase as we see the gospel increasing here among the Colossians. So, Paul presents his thanksgiving to God for the Colossians, but he also presents his supplication. We're going to see that in verses 9 through 14. A supplication is a request, but a request made with passion. Do you hear the language, passionate language, in verse 9? And so, from the day we heard, We have not ceased to pray for you. Paul presents his request for the Colossians incessantly. He bases his supplication prayer on his thanksgiving prayer. In other words, the grace the Colossians experience in the gospel, verses 3 through 8, becomes the anchor for the request Paul goes on to make, verses 9 through 14. Unfortunately, The ESV, the English Standard Version, which is the version I use, does not express this well. So if you look in verse 9, verse 9 begins with the words, and so. But these words are probably better rendered as, and on account of this. On account of what? On account of the grace that we just talked about in verses 3 through 8. On account of the grace that you have received, I present these requests 
to God. The NASB actually does a better job rendering these words, the New American Standard Bible. It says, for this reason. For this reason. I have not ceased to intercede for you. Now, that's better. Now we can hear the ground of the argument. The ground of the supplication is the work of God in their lives. Because the gospel is at work in you, Paul is saying, therefore I make this request to God on your behalf. This makes sense, doesn't it? It's shallow and ultimately unloving for us to pray primarily that the Lord would bless someone who does not know Him. Praying for favor without praying for regeneration is empty. Jesus would say, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but to lose his soul? But when we pray for someone who knows the gospel, we can be thankful for their salvation and pray that the fruit of the gospel would increase in them. And this is the point of Paul's prayer, that the fruit of the gospel would increase among the Colossians. They would live God godly lives. Victory over sin and joy in the Lord. Paul is praying, Lord, may the gospel that saved them change them. And this is my prayer for you, Central Baptist Church. Lord, may the gospel that saved us change us. And what is the content of Paul's supplication? Look back at verse 9. He says, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, there is so much to unpack here. A whole sermon could be preached on this verse. Perhaps a few sermons could be preached on this verse. But Paul is praying basically here that the Colossians would have discernment. He's praying for the Colossians to have discernment. He wants them to know the will of God through wisdom and understanding, through a wisdom and understanding that comes from the Spirit. Romans 12 verse 2 do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Why do we need to be transformed? So that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. You see? God wants us to grow in our spiritual walk with Him so that we can understand what He wants from us. Now, Sometimes it could be difficult to be discerning, right? So, spouses, is it hard sometimes to discern your spouse's will? You know, the whole, the whole, hey, is everything okay? By the way, this goes both ways, okay? 
both husbands and wives can be, can be confusing about their will. The whole deal, is everything okay? And you hear that answer, everything's fine. But you know there's more below the surface, right? You, you know there's more that needs, to be, that needs to come up. You think, huh, what is this cryptic message that I am receiving or giving here? But this is not how God works. God's will for us is clear. He wants us to discern, and He actually tells us what it is. What is the will of God for us is that we would behave in a way that is worthy of Him. God's will for us is that we would grow in holiness. We don't have to wonder what His will is. The discernment is so that we can understand how to be transformed and what to change in our lives. Look at verse 10. He says, so as, right, you should be filled with discernment, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's the will of God for your life. Have you ever wondered, God, what is your will for my life? This is His will. That your walk would be worthy of Him. That you would be pleasing to Him. That your fruit would be abundant and increasing. That you would grow in Christ. That you would experience this growth from one degree of glory to the next. This is God's will for your life. So stop opening the Bible and trying to pinpoint a verse out of nowhere to discern God's will. That's not how we discern God's will. This imagery of walking is very common in Hebrew literature. Think of Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, Walking here means living out the faith that is born in you. Faith gives you knowledge and wisdom, but it also causes you to walk in the Lord. You can read the entirety of Proverbs 2, and you're going to see over and over this language of motion paired up with fulfilling the will of God in our lives. Listen to, listen to just a few verses in Proverbs 2. Verse 6, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. The three verbs that we see here in this passage. He stores up sound wisdom for the uprights. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice. And watching over the way of the saints. You see, friends, here what we see is that the internal reality of our faith must match the external expression of our faith. That which we believe in should agree with how we live our lives. The will of God is not a point that we stand on, it's a path that we walk on. 
And as we walk, we grow in discernment. We grow in understanding. So do not freeze up because you don't know exactly what the Lord wants for you. Walk with Him. Continue in your Christian life. And as you walk, the Lord will give you understanding. This is fully pleasing to the Lord. Friends, nothing should concern us more than be pleasing to the Lord. And the Lord is pleased when we walk in faith. I asked you this question in the beginning. Does your life please the Lord? And this verse answers this question, doesn't it? If we're growing in our knowledge of the Lord, and if you're walking with Him, He is pleased with you, period. Paul's prayer now moves from a request for discernment to a request for assurance. God's grace is in full display here in these last few verses. Look at verse 11. He gives us strength and power. So we can continue in this walk with patience and endurance and joy. And then here comes verse 12. We give thanks to Him because He has already qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of life. This means, friend, if you are in Christ, you are already approved. If you are trusting in Christ, God needs no further qualification from you. So does your life please the Lord? If the Lord has qualified you in Christ, yes, it does. Can you be assured of heaven? Yes, you can. Can you know that God is for you and not against you? Yes, you can. Can you know that God's wrath no longer rests on you? Yes, you can. I'm not saying that our walk with the Lord on this end of eternity will be perfect. But although God's demand of holiness are great on us, His supply of grace is even greater. Friends, this is why Jesus died, so that we could be accepted. God in Christ gives us what He requires of us, the righteousness that you need in order to be accepted by the Lord comes from the Lord. Listen to Philippians 4.19. We often think of this verse about physical things, but this refers to spiritual things as well. And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. That means... The righteousness that you need, the holiness that you need to see the Lord, that comes from the Lord Himself. You know, one time, many years ago, a friend asked me a question that completely changed my relationship with the Lord. He asked me the question, do you believe God is more pleased with you the days you do your devotionals? And I said, yes. And he said, you are wrong. God is pleased with you based on Christ's faithfulness, not your faithfulness. When we are unfaithful, He still is faithful. God is not pleased with us because we are so disciplined with our spiritual lives. God is pleased with us because we're united with His Son in whom He is fully 
least. So friends, because of Christ, even when we're struggling with our spiritual walk, we can know that God is pleased with us. And how is this possible? Look at verses 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You need to memorize this verse. You need to know these words, both both for your sake and for the sake of evangelism. The image here is of someone who is enslaved by darkness, trapped and lost, unable to find his way, and even if he was able to find it, he would not be able or powerful enough to escape. The only hope for this person is to be rescued, to be delivered, to be transferred. The good news is that there is a transfer in this passage. Not a transfer that we can do ourselves, but one that God does for us. He has delivered us. This is the transfer that God Himself accomplishes from the, bringing us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of His beloved Son, to the kingdom of Christ. You know, transfers can be costly. In 2017, there was a great transfer in the world of soccer. Neymar, player, transferred from Barcelona to PSG in France. The fee to break his contract, not the fee for his contract, the fee to break his contract alone was a quarter of a billion dollars. Now, that's a costly transfer. But friends, the cost of your transfer pales in light of the cost of the cost of your transfer, this transfer, transfer pales in light of the cost of our transfer. Because our transfer cost the life of the Son of God Himself. The word redemption here refers to the price that you would cost to buy a slave out of slavery. And that is us. We are enslaved to our own sin, and Christ redeemed us. What greater motivation do we need to live for Him? 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says this, You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So, Glorify God in your body. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, that you would work in us, that we would believe your gospel. Lord, we need you to produce faith in us so that we would know, Lord, that what you demand from us comes from you. So Lord, we wouldn't think that we begun our, our walk in faith, but now we need to walk in the flesh. Lord, may Christ grow greater and bigger 
before us day by day so that, Lord, we would not rest in our own works, but on the works of Christ alone. This is our prayer unto you today. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.